So um, a very warm welcome to every one of you. It's so um, fabulous to be back here at New York Insight and to have uh, escaped the winter. <laughs> We've been following it um, and seeing how tremendously severe it was. And I'm glad to see the beginnings of spring and um, hopefully some warming, although I heard it might uh, be chilly again tomorrow. So um, we're delighted to be here. Um, and um, we, um, we're very grateful to have also been invited by uh, New York Inside or offered the space to um, continue to, so grateful for that. So I thought tonight we'd start, maybe just we can sit for five or ten minutes or so and just gather ourselves after our busy days. So I encourage you to um, just um, orientating your awareness, your attention to the sensation, which is probably the strongest sensation of the pressure of, of sitting, the thighs, the buttocks on, on the cushion or on your, your chair. So you just feel into that sensation because it will help to ground you here. And uh, feel the breath. Sometimes can be quite shallow, so just even maybe a little bit more deliberately taking a slower breath into the belly. And feeling that breath suffuse through the body, then as you breathe out, relaxing through the body. So let's, uh, as people arriving and setting up, let's just take a few breaths like that to help us arrive here in this space together. Again, as you're breathing out, softening around the face and the jaw and the shoulders. Softening down through to the belly, arms, palms of the hands, legs, soles of the feet. So you can take as many deep, slow inhalations as is helpful, as steadying. The body enjoys the suffusion of the breath energy through, throughout the whole, the entirety of our physical form, up into the brain, in the head, and down through the torso, arms, pelvic area, thighs, hands, calves and soles of the feet again. <coughs> After a, a few deepening, slowing breaths, you might find your breath just wanting to come to its own natural rhythm. Just allowing your awareness to be open so that you can receive and feel and connect with that rhythm of the breath within the body. The sounds around you all appearing within the open awareness of the mind. 
And as we sit quietly for a few minutes together, just using this time to, on, particularly on each out-breath, just to gently release from the day, from the activity, from the things we're holding, and allowing ourselves as fully as we can to arrive here within our experience, within the experience of the body breathing, just the sounds, the sensations, flickering, touching our awareness, arising and passing within the ground of knowingness, presence. So this theme of listening to the heart, so quieting, quietening and gathering, allowing this inner listening, receiving our being, ourself, our body, the feelings, the sensations, the sounds, the sense of each other, the space that we're sitting within, receiving this within the awareness of the heart, which is present, alive, tender, receptive, receiving all the impressions and the experience with moments of a kindliness, allowing a non-aversion, so nothing is outside of this heart, this mind of ours. part of the web of life which can be touched with care, with awareness. It's um, quite delicious to just take a few moments to gather and uh, savor the stillness and uh, quiet quietness inwardly. Um, I thought this evening to begin by just uh, speaking a little bit about the actual uh, coming together of the book. This, uh, this evening is dedicated to this launch of this uh, the book that we we've uh, that we wrote over the last 10 to 15 years it's um i mean it would have been easier to climb mount everest probably <laughs> but <laughs> maybe not but <laughs> sort of felt a bit like on that level um it's um it was uh, i think very daunting uh, for many reasons i think just um any any project that one undertakes, um, like writing a book or a similar kind of project, is going to perhaps challenge us. But there's particularly something about this this book that was was um, difficult to to figure out how to do because it had two different um, voices, my own and Kitty Sorrow's, in it, and um, 
And it just took quite a while to figure out how to do that, you know, whether to write as one voice, but then realizing quite soon that, that we both had very different backgrounds and cultures that we came from and stories and roads into the Dharma and then particular angles and perspectives on the practice of the Dharma. So it felt like both of those voices had to, to be honored and to, to be placed. And then how to place them in relationship to each other. Do you do like one, one paragraph or a few and then switch to another or, you know, so um, that, that, that just took a while to figure out. Probably if one was a bit smarter than I felt about it, one would figure it out quicker, but it, it took a while. And then we realized that it'd be helpful maybe just to have alternate chapters. And then the, the origins of the book were transcriptions from the talks that we've done over the years. We've taught meditation retreats, not more recently in the U US, but we taught a lot in Europe um, from about, um, well, before when we were monastics, in, as, uh, when we were in robes, we taught in, in mostly in the UK and mostly to um, other monastics, but uh, lay people. Then when we disrobed, we started to be invited to teach in, in the UK and then further afield in Europe. And um, then we were invited uh, down to South Africa in 94, just at the time of the liberation um, to teach the Dharma. So we've been involved in South Africa since that time, 20 years. So a lot of our experience was actually outside of the USA, but during that time, a number of our, our, our talks were, were recorded, and we began to realize as we taught, particularly the formula of a 10-day retreat, or five days or longer, we actually started teaching longer retreats at the, at the center in South Africa. We started to teach month-longs and three months. We began to notice that we were emerging a pattern to our teaching. It wasn't necessarily that kind of calculated, but it was just the natural way that the, the graduated way that the Buddha would teach where we were sort of emulating some of that with beginning the, the first part of the retreat, focusing on the samadhi and samatha, the calming and focusing practices. And then the middle parts of the retreat, looking at the wisdom and the insight, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, the liberation teachings, the recognition of the of nirvana, nibbana, um, you know, through the practice of, of um, inquiry. Um, and then, generally speaking, the last part of the retreat will begin to explore relational practice, the brahma-viharas, the qualities of heart, compassion, and um, connecting in the world, and so on. But we were also um, we also started to develop teachings and embroider into those what, we, what you might classically call within the Theravada school, Mahayana teachings that we'd both been practicing ourselves for many years um, around Chan or, or Zen, sort of more non-dual type practice, and then the Kuan Yin, more devotional types of practice. So we had a body of work, but when you give a talk and it's transcribed, you might think it looks good on paper, but it doesn't necessarily hold together very well. So um, the first job was to just put those together, and there was a lot of material, and then um, I sought some help from an editor in South Africa, and, and she was fairly new to meditation, so it was very helpful to work with her because she had a lot of very good questions, things that I would 
you know, that we, we have a certain language that you start to develop as a meditator, that people say, what on earth do you mean by that? You say, oh, well, you know, I just assume everyone knew what you meant by letting go or, you know, or, or sort of being in process about something or, you know, there's this kind of this in language. So it was very helpful to have someone question, well, what do you mean about desire and the, the five skandhas and what's the difference between self and not, you know. So that was very helpful to hear from an outside perspective someone that was interested and engaged but still had this sort of mind that was like, what are you saying here? So then that took another few years to, to try and sort of iron out some of that and, and it was very, very overwhelming in a way to, to try and think about how to articulate things that one just assumed you knew what you were talking about until you tried to write it down. Um, so that, that took a while. So then, then there was also the... Um, you know, how to bring in these two, these different styles of teaching, the Theravada, the Mahayana. So there's two different voices, two really primary schools of Buddhist practice, and northern and southern schools of Buddhism, and how to sort of marry them a bit so that they related to each other. Um, and then, then we had this rather diverse background of first of all practicing as monastics and then as lay people. And those are very different grounds of practice and different, whole different, in some ways, I mean, the practice is the same in all, in all lifestyles, but the ground of practice and the context of it was extremely different, and some of the focuses. So then how to bring that in, and then there were these other experiences like being on in South Africa um, for the 20 years and, and trying to somehow respond there. <laughs> both lead, responding to invitations to teach Dharma, but also in a country that had just emerged out of this very profound uh, trauma, really, of, of, well, besides years of colonialism, but also um, so many years, in decades of, of apartheid, which is a, a, is a sort of a madness. It was, it's a, a mad system. So to go into a country that to us seemed mad, w which was normalized for everyone else, because that's just what was conditioned in. So there was these sort of resonances and, and sense of dissonance in relationship to all of that and being in a very deep rural area where there was a, in a way, apartheid was still continuing, um, economically at least, and, and there was still a, a sense of distance, even though there was a physical closeness between primarily the white community and the African community, there was still very much you know, huge gulfs in many, many ways. Um, so, uh, how to try and bring some of that in um, while honoring and respecting people's, uh, you know, uh, the experience of the people that we were working with. Um, how to name really difficult territories. How authentically do you do that without completely alienating <laughs> yourself from the context you're within? And then on the, on the other hand, during that time there, in about just after the liberation, th we were found ourselves in the m in in the heart of um, of what exploded as the as the AIDS pandemic. So that took our our whole our whole sort of way of practice from a very interior kind of self enlightenment process through the primarily practice of meditation and teaching that that took it into. Um, having to, this wasn't as appropriate anymore just to sit on our cushion. We were literally having people come knock at our doors. You know, so-and-so needed um, 
help, you know, in one way or another. I need financial help, need medicine, need someone that died, needed, you know. So then we were responding to individuals, and it was like overwhelming. Start to think about: is there organ? Is there a sort of a, a project we could start? So then we started getting involved in fundraising and trying to help start a number of projects and and uh, engaging that. So in a way, we became engaged. I suppose Dharma engaged um, with the with the with the complexity of the situation. So so some of that really needed to be written to. Um, and at a certain point in that life in South Africa, so after so many years, uh, about 2004, um, we actually hit a really some very difficult patches. We got exhausted. We felt a whole complex thing that unfolded. Um, around us through the behavior, particularly of someone um, that had been put in a very trustworthy position, which oscillated a tremendous racial divide. Um, and we found ourselves, in a way, uh, having to um, sort of like hitting a brick wall and having to become much more realistic about the dynamic we were in in South Africa, how deeply split it was still in so many ways that um, that we had, you know, the, at different, uh, deeper levels than we had really, uh, I suppose, understood, and that was somewhat personally wounding. And so, at that point, Kitty Saro went on a year retreat. Uh, we closed the the Hermitage, and I went back to the UK, and I I took myself through a two-year uh, therapeutic process. So all of that. Uh, both training as a therapist, but also mainly I did that because I, I felt I needed to actually undergo therapy, <laughs> be in a, a very um, Buddhist-based, awareness-based uh, therapeutic process to try and explore what I was by that point, after leaving the monastery and uh, struggling with some of the gender issues and trying to readapt, and then South Africa, I felt like I was just then carrying a lot of um, sort of wounded material which was both personal and more perhaps uh, collective. So so by the time we came to write the book, that some of that was still being processed and still felt like an important voice or experience to bring in into the whole uh, question of how does the, these teachings and practices really apply uh, to this world we live in now, and not only to all of that, but then by the time the book was beginning to shape up, and we were finding a structure for it, we, you know, were beginning to awaken to the enormous catastrophe that we're now facing globally through, through climate change and all that's implied in that. So then it felt like, well, you can't not mention that, because <laughs> it's going to be very up. Uh, for all of us in all our communities, and it's going to be very important for um, spiritually based communities to find a way to respond to this because people it's going to be very stressful and it has all sorts of implications and demands upon us. So, then the last chapter, you know, we wanted to bring it in that into, into our consideration, and yet through all of it, so that's a very complex field. You know, as as um, Philip Moffat said, actually, you've written three books in one. You've written your own. The other piece we needed to do is introduce who the hell are, are we? <laughs> these two people that people say, who are, who are these authors? We had to introduce a little bit of who we were 
So it's a, a bit of a personal story, and how did we come together after being in a monastic life, and and then South Africa? Because people always ask these questions, you know. So it's thought, well, just write about it, and hopefully no one will ask anymore. <laughs> so there was that, and then there was a Dharma book, you know, about what's the core of our life, which is the the love of meditation and the Dharma. And then there was the application of it in all these spheres, and and in some ways. Um, Part of that being the psychological work or the therapeutic work, um, working with wounds not only personally but also what is collective to all of us, um, due to what everything that's that that's held, um, not necessarily just because of us personally, but because of the conditioning and the the kinds of uh, histories that we've all come from. So, so to have all of that happen and then try to make it simple <laughs> and readable and not too overwhelming and cohesive and coherent so you felt you could carry a thread through and not just go, well, where are we now? And it's just a big dog's dinner. So you can begin to understand why it started to take so long. So it began to shape up what, what we thought was, seemed to be a pretty good manuscript and so then we faced the next hurdle, which is then to find a publisher, which, as, as we all know, is very, very difficult. And, and basically, that was a bit of a series of quite a few closed doors. And um, I thought the Buddhist publishers might be interested in this, but they weren't. Because <laughs> we were not very well known, uh, particularly in the USA, and that really does um, dictate quite a lot. But then I have a very dear friend who's uh, Andrew Harvey, who's um, a Rumi scholar and um, poet and author and runs a sacred activism institute. And he came uh, to work with us in South Africa a bit. And I said, oh, Andrew, he's got 30 books published. He was the youngest fellow at Oxford. I mean, he's a really sort of brainy guy, knows those worlds very well. I said, Andrew, I've got this manuscript. Would you read it? So he said, yes, cool, starling, send it to me. So I sent it off, and then when he arrived, came to stay at our place in South Africa, and he uh, went to collect him from the plane. Um, he, got off the, he got off the plane, and he walked up to me, and the first thing he said, darling, I've got to have a cigarette. <laughs> the second thing he said was, it's a wonderful book. He said, oh, we're going to get it published. I was like, yay! <laughs> so I have to give a lot of thanks to Andrew because he really opened the door for us for, um, for the, to have the book published through North Atlantic uh, Books, which, um, which operate out of Berkeley, California. And then we really had a lot of help with them to help tidy it up, pull it together, the two editors, uh, Hisaya Masudi and um, Tejo. Um, were really excellent and um, and uh, helped us uh, get over that final hurdle. Um, and then we also, that just last thing to say, we also had the um, we also had to edit it together several times, which is a real test <laughs> on one <laughs> because you know just to to go through each page of a book as a couple and to sort of decide on how things, I mean, and I thought we actually managed to do that pretty well. We took lots of deep breaths and cups of tea and we just go through it. And, and by the end of it all, we really felt, you know, like this is a really nice book. You know, <laughs> this is actually okay. We felt proud of it and felt that it was, you know, that it's, it's got to the place where it can, um, you know, after, you know, both of us have been practicing about 40 years and been 
teaching for many years and, and had a lot of experience, I think, in many ways, just listening to students and their questions. You know, many, many questions, many struggles, many issues around how does the Dharma integrate. So it felt like it really was an important book for us to put together, almost as a, as a response to, to all of that, you know, to all of the people that we'd met over the years through all the many, many retreats that we had um, hosted. So then the last thing was the title. And Andrew, want, what did he want to call it? Bri um, original Radiance. Original Radiance, which, which was lovely, but didn't quite fit. So in the end, the publishers chose the title, and I think they chose very well, because at the core of the book, there's two chapters we wrote together. The last chapter, which is called An Intimate World, you know, responding to the world now is very intimate. We can't go anywhere and escape anymore <laughs> from the realities of the world we live in. Um, and then the, the middle chapter, it, which is called um, the Kuan Yin chapter. <laughs> can't remember what it's called. <laughs> um, Contemplative Ease, it's one of the names of Kuan Yin, Contemplative Ease. Um, the, in a way, this is the heart of the book, is the practice of Kuan Yin, who is a Buddhist archetype for compassion and mercy, but is also known as the as connected or the one that reveals the, the Heart Sutra, which is the profound wisdom, non-dual wisdom. Um, so we wanted to draw on Kuan Yin and Kuan Yin's method of awakening is listening, then listening to sound, but then returning the hearing back into the self-nature. Who is the one listening? Where does everything return to? So this, this, this title, Listening to the Heart, really felt like it was um, the appropriate title because it, it exactly describes the, the practice, the profound practice of Kuan Yin. So th I think that's that's it for to say for about to sort of putting the book together. As I said, it took probably mainly about ten years. Most of it was written in the end in Tennessee, where the family home is Kitty family home, where we were also helping to look after his father, and father, my father-in-law, who just passed over about two months ago. Um, so and he also avidly followed the book as it was sort of shaping up and. And he, and the, he was very, very keen to see it before he died. It was one of the last things that happened before he died when he's 98. Did I just say that? I'm just repeating myself. Anyway, he had it in his hands. He, when he was so, it was such a lovely sort of kind of caveat to finish on to, you know, his life. He was very thrilled. He sent it to everyone. I don't even know if the neighbors next door really wanted to get books on listening to the heart. But anyway, they everyone... <laughs> But everyone got a copy that he could think of, so it was a, a very a sweet and, and um, bittersweet um, sort of finale for, 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 for the book and, and for our, you know, the, the last part of last few weeks of Mo's life. Thank you for the introduction, uh, Tanisra, and it's uh, it's an offering uh, for us to have this chance 
uh, to meet with you all uh, this evening in uh, New York City, which uh, I am thinking of my father a lot these days, and he, he grew up here and uh, loved his uh, years in a multicultural society down on the corner of Market in Madison, uh, helping his dad run a little grocery school store through, through the Depression and uh, feeling so grateful that his dad taught him that uh, you, you try to help people. And uh, he, he was uh, so touched uh, by the example his father set. And I uh, feel very grateful that my dad was uh, able to fulfill his wish to uh, finish his days at the house he built with mom 66 years ago on Lake Chickamauga uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And for a New York Jew to go south and marry a Southern Baptist uh, was unusual. And uh, mom said uh, they should, uh, she said, well, we, we decided to wait for five years before having children just to see if the marriage would take. <laughs> And uh, I guess it took. And then they wanted to have a spiritual framework, something that honored the deeper values of a human, that allow humans to really ripen, grow, mature, flower. And um, Dad didn't want to kind of become a Baptist, and Mom couldn't see converting to Judaism, but she saw in the paper a little snippet. Are you a Unitarian and don't know it? <laughs> Mo, do, do you think we should go? So Dad and Mom went, and there was a, just like 10, and Dad even became the lay preacher for several years until they could find their own Unitarian minister. But uh, I, in those days, we, it was beautiful that they honored that wisdom could come from many sources. So I would have heard the word Buddha and Moses and Christ and Muhammad and Ram and uh, all the different names and this idea there is a mystery. There is something of, of precious here. And yet it also was the Bible Belt. And uh, we got regularly told uh, we're going to hell. And yet inside our church they would teach us do unto others as you have them do unto you. And I, I was getting heated up. And my dad was so calm. And he said, don't worry. And I, I, I couldn't believe he was so calm and understanding. And Buddhist monks were thin on the ground in Chattanooga, Tennessee, <laughs> very thin. And so, you know, I didn't, certainly wasn't planning to end up halfway around the world as a Buddhist monk. But uh, we tried to be good people, and somehow we picked up this, this deep, the brothers, my two brothers and I, deep, ardor for, for excellence, for striving, for wanting to do well and be the best, and there was nothing bad in it. I, I, 
loved it, but there was this sense of that you can get there, get to a place of real worthiness, happiness, well-being. And uh, so I loved wrestling. I wrestled and, and won a bunch of tournaments and in the, in, even won a national invitational tournament up in Pennsylvania. And I worked really hard at studies and I ended up at uh, uh, Princeton and I still kept working and uh, found myself at some point unexpectedly even winning a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford to go to Oxford. And uh, for, for a few years, I'd had this sense that, that, you, that my idea of sort of arriving at happiness wasn't really, was problematic. Because I, even though I had, you know, done a lot of good things, I, I wasn't able to appreciate. I had a mind that would always keep seeing flaws and keep, uh, the problem with this competition is one's always judging and separating oneself and comparing and that mind can, can turn back on ourselves so that we're not able to appreciate anything. And um, by the time I got to Oxford, I was 24, and I like to say I felt 104. I felt ancient and exhausted. And a sense that I had overlooked something. And even just the word enlightenment, uh, I didn't know what it meant, but it, uh, it stirred something, this idea that there was some possibility of uh, connecting to, remembering a perspective, an understanding that, uh, that made sense, that was peaceful. And uh, I had always uh, benefited and been blessed by, by teachers, and I, I really knew I needed, uh, needed help. And I heard about a great master in, in Thailand, so I ended up uh, uh, putting down my scholarship, much to the horror of my parents, and uh, ended, off, ended up going to Thailand uh, thinking I would just, uh, you know, I figured I could do it in a year, but I thought, <laughs> I thought, come on, Kitty Shaw, be humble. Give yourself two years, Mac. <laughs> And so the warden, I figured the warden of the Roach Trust wasn't going to like it, but I was going to ask for a, a leave of absence. I asked for one, expecting a big fight, and he said, uh, Sir Edgar Williams said, uh, Randy, uh, looks really interesting. I, I um, uh, um, hope you find it enriching. And, um, but he said, but you won't come back. I was like, no, yes, I will. I, and he says, look, Randy, we'll keep your scholarship for you for two years, but you won't come back because I can see you found your vocation. Huh? But he, he knew me better than I knew my, myself. And um, I ended up spending 15 years as a, as a monk. And uh, w one of the reasons that I went was not only was I tired, but I couldn't understand why we 
end up harming the ones we love. Why do we do that? So many people fall in love, and then we end up wanting to kill each other. And I just thought, why? And, and all those years in the monastery helped me learn to connect, to bless life with the loving awareness. Awareness that's not distorted is love. It, it reveals, because awareness embraces. Everything actually appears in the knowingness, the awareness of this moment. And until we really turn back to this ground of listening, we won't see the unification, the connection, the kinship we have with one another, and even with this earth, and even with all matter. And so I'm also grateful for those years in the monastery allowed me enough maturity so that when I met this one here, we had a chance not just to kill each other, we come close a couple of times, <laughs> but to really uh, appreciate each other and, and grow together. This book would not have happened without Tanisra. Uh, I, I thought there's so many books out there, you know, uh, but she kept encouraging. And um, I'm so grateful that she uh, kept encouraging because I realize now, no, it's a gift. At this, I'm 60, hmm. <laughs> I can't remember, 63, I'm 63. <laughs> and I realize this is an opportunity to share what has uh, been so precious in this life and to share that no matter what happens, and especially that which is painful, don't be afraid of it when we open to it and, and allow ourselves to be touched by the challenges of life. They can take us home. And as the Buddha said, they are ennobling truths. They help us become more truly human. Um, so I want to read uh, just a, a bit from the, um, uh, the book about this uh, this activity of turning to the stress and suffering of our life and how it can ennoble us. This is a section of the book on the Bodhisattva vows. The, a Bodhisattva is committed to awakening but realizing the essential kinship of all beings is a committed also to the awakening of others, that may all beings wake up to this jewel of peace and radiance and sensitivity in our being. The first noble truth and accompanying practice is there is suffering and suffering needs to be understood, said the Buddha. This motivation matures into the first bodhisattva vow. Countless beings suffer. I vow to liberate them all. This is an amazing thought. It's counterintuitive, as our instinct is to only look to our own welfare 
or that of our family, tribe, and country. Instead, this vow begins to turn the mind away from an, from an obsession around me and mine and encourages us to consider the welfare of others, regardless of their circumstance, where they live or who they are, because all living beings are part of our dharma body. The bodhisattva understands that there is no ultimate separation between helping another and helping oneself. Opening to the experience of suffering, as encouraged in the first noble truth, becomes a vehicle for deepening compassion. Initially, we say, it's my suffering. However, little by little, we start to gain insight into how we perpetuate it. As we do so, we can let go of the causes and taste some peace. If we can do this, others can too. Actually, in the aware heart, there is no ultimate distinction between self and other. As we understand how this sense of me and you emerges, from the discriminating mind, the distinctions dissolve. Ultimately, how is my suffering different from your suffering? It's just suffering. Our instinct is to turn away from suffering to create distinctions like, that's not mine and I don't need to deal with it. Instead, little by little, this vow encourages a perspective that allows us to embrace suffering wherever we meet it. It encourages us to keep our hearts open and our minds agile and responsive. We're being invited on a transformative journey, a sacred pilgrimage into the ever-deepening capacity of our heart. This movement naturally taps into the most profound level of motivation which is the intention of the bodhisattva. Cultivating compassion is the practice of the first great vow. A bodhisattva is willing to feel suffering in order to investigate it. The motivation to understand suffering and to be free from it ripens our humanity and gradually blesses us with the sensitivity, power, understanding and desire to serve others. Sometimes the most powerful teachers arrive in unexpected ways. A tiny flea-infested puppy mysteriously found its way down a rugged mountain through the wilderness to our doorstep. When Tanisra immediately wanted to keep it, I was reluctant, thinking, it will be trouble. <laughs> Thankfully, she won out in the end, for I had no idea that this little furry fellow would touch our hearts and induct us more deeply into the sublime perfection of love. Over time, he became my personal trainer, and together we walked the mountains. He guided me back to vitality and joy, and when it seemed everyone else had abandoned us, our little friend Jack was ever loyal and always happy to see us, unless we wanted to give him a bath. <laughs> our hearts opened. His suffering became our suffering. His joy 
was our joy. Jack was a legend on the road. Often in South Africa, the white people's dogs bark at the blacks, and the black people's dogs bark at the whites. Jack, however, was a bilingual peacemaker, <laughs> and everybody loved him, except baboons. He had many names. The Zulus called him Numzan, the man, because Jack was in charge of all the work projects, and he took naps whenever he pleased. He loved to sit on the mountainside like a lion and gaze out across his territory. His Old Testament name was Jacob because he was forever wrestling with angels, bounding into the wild to challenge intruders, protecting us from harm. His New Testament name was Lazarus because he came back from the dead many times after being injured, poisoned, and even kidnapped. Ajahn Sujito dubbed him Vajrapani after the great Dharma protector, and we just called him Jack. Vajrapani, Jacob, Lazarus, Numzan, Jack Weinberg, <laughs> the first and last. He touched people's hearts. He had many amazing, gut-wrenching adventures, for living in the rural mountains of KwaZulu-Natal had its multitude of perils. Even so, he was faithfully and blissfully present in our shrine room for countless meditation retreats and devotional ceremonies. Those precious moments when we feel love are important because we sense that deep kinship with a fellow being and begin to see beyond the lonely prison of separateness. Seeing him tremble when he was frightened, I naturally felt with him come passion and wanted to help. The last few months of his 14-year life, I nursed him day and night as the ability the debilitating effects of the brain tumor took their toll. Even though I couldn't rest properly, I didn't mind, because sleeping next to him, I could listen to his breathing and respond whenever he had a seizure or needed help to turn over. What a beautiful, sacred impulse to feel with another being and wish to take on their suffering, to look for ways to make another's life free of distress. Jack was like our child, and when he died, surrounded by beautiful chants and oceans of loving gratitude, we all cried, even our loyal local vet. After Jack's last breath, I was amazed to hear a howl of loss rip its way through my body from the depths of my being. In so many ways, he was my teacher, showing me the beauty of deeply caring for another. Can we learn to widen that feeling, to include all our fellow beings? This is the vision of the Bodhisattva. This is the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha identified loving kindness, metta, as one of the essential qualities of heart that carries us to awakening. He encouraged his disciples to develop it and extend its healing blessing to all beings universally. He taught in the Metta Sutta, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. This might seem impossible, 
but the Buddha is showing us the direction and revealing the boundless treasure hidden in our own heart. We cultivate this large-hearted attitude little by little, patiently and persistently. We can notice when we are touched by someone and naturally wish them well. Be interested in that feeling of kindness and expand it to include ourselves and others, those we like, the ones we're neutral about, and even beings we dislike. This takes practice, but when we remember how important loving kindness is for healing ourselves in the world, we'll find the energy arrives. Actually, all living beings are our brothers and sisters in birth and death. We all suffer and wish to leave it behind. Reflecting like this, we don't do to others what we don't want them to do to us. An important premise for this practice is this principle, to others as to oneself. Our Western teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, taught us that the seed of metta is the attitude of non-contention, non-fighting, the willingness to allow things to be as they are and welcome them into our hearts. Sometimes if we try and convince ourselves we love everyone, it feels false, or we end up in denial about all the reactions of resentment and aversion that regularly assail the heart. On the other hand, when we practice this friendly intention with all our thoughts, sensations, and moods, pleasant, unpleasant, beautiful and ugly, we find ourselves in an open-hearted abiding that is not disturbed by anything. Whatever is bothering us, we welcome that too, just as it is, with an attitude of non-fighting, not harboring ill will. I'm very grateful to have been taught a gateway into this practice that is accessible. As a Buddhist monk, I was also a prison chaplain in the southwest of England, and on one occasion I visited a high-security prison, an old, cold-looking, grim stone building in the middle of the moors in Devon. I had been invited to lead a Vesak meeting, the celebration of the main Buddhist holiday. For high-security prisoners who usually were not allowed to meet together, as they were considered to be too dangerous. When I arrived in my robes, the stony-faced guards led me through the various security checks and iron gates to a small, dingy classroom with about a dozen prisoners sitting around on the floor. I was a bit nervous and thought I'd break the ice by getting everyone to introduce themselves and tell me a little bit about why they were interested in meditation. As we were going around the circle, the guards waiting outside the door started to mock me. Hare Krishna, Hare Hare, hey Harry, have you seen Barry? What about Larry? Hare Hare, quite contrary. <laughs> they, they kept up a steady flow of noisy taunts. This threw me off. I could see my group getting upset. I knew I couldn't pretend the disturbance wasn't happening, so I suggested we practice some loving-kindness meditation. 
the guy sitting next to me, Arthur, who had just told us he was in for murder, <laughs> said in a tight, mean voice, I don't have any kindness. If I had the chance, I'd break his neck again. <laughs> well, I thought, what a start. <laughs> We're really swinging along. <laughs> For a few moments, I wasn't quite sure how to proceed. There was a very toxic and volatile energy in the room that was hard to bear. And as I stayed with the uncomfortable feelings, I remembered the essence of the teaching. We don't have to pretend to like everything or be dishonest. I asked Arthur if he could have some kindness for the, for the conviction I don't have any kindness or compassion. I encouraged him just to hear that inner voice with its harsh judgment along with the painful feelings and see if he could allow them to be as they were, not fight them or add ill will to the situation, but to receive the whole sense of himself in a more spacious and kindly way. As we all practice non-contention and a kind willingness to be with the ongoing taunts and our reactions, giving friendly space to it all, a remarkable meltdown occurred. Soon Arthur started crying. The room softened. The atmosphere transformed. And for a magical period, we weren't trapped in a prison anymore. We enjoyed the measureless, divine abiding of loving kindness. We were flying in the thick stone walls, the dingy room, the mocking voices all melted away, illumined and suffused by a boundless heart of non-resistance. We were blown away. Arthur had never considered kindness for himself or looked at the fiery, mean conviction that he didn't have it, which was like jagged concrete in his heart. As we all practiced, allowing, befriending, and being with the feeling Everything started to soften. Just a few minutes of making peace, space, to receive the pain of the past and present with some kindness creates a larger healing container. It initiates a journey that starts to allow the deep-rooted patterns of bitterness to dissolve. The journey isn't over, of course, but it's an important beginning. Amidst the ridicule, we were happy, flowing in that larger river of wakefulness. We were resting for a time in the original radiance of our hearts, sensing our common humanity and the great ocean of our collective being. Eventually, the heckling by the guards petered out. Maybe they had a change of heart. Anytime we feel the wish to help others and then act on it, we are in the territory of this first bodhisattva vow. As we practice kindness, not pushing things away, we will naturally see more clearly. Our insight will deepen and our understanding will become increasingly subtle. We'll see the crippling limitation of the assumptions we make about ourselves the way we're imprisoned by our opinions and how we trap others in the same way. 
Ajahn Sumedho said the most compassionate thing we can do for another is not trap them with our views. Can we remember that behind all the personas of that person we dislike is a radiant heart just waiting to be remembered? If we see the potential for awakening in another, then perhaps for a moment they are more likely to discover it themselves. So, thank you. So I'd like to um, also read a, a short piece and then um, see if there's any uh, questions or comments um, from you from you all. Um, and then we have some time if you would like to um, take a book. Um, they are on a special. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good price. <laughs> um, then then um, we are very happy to sign them. So I just find the piece I'm thinking of. <coughs> This, uh, this was uh, the time from the chapters where um, Kilisaro went into a long retreat and then I went back to England and was doing a lot of um, deeper work, um, more through psycho-spiritual processes um, around uh, early uh, woundings and um, connecting that with a more collective wounding. We live in an interdependent world which influences our personal experiences. Therefore, healing the personal engages the collective. A powerful aspect of our collective and ancestral inheritance is the influence of patriarchy, which has shaped human consciousness for millennia. The effects of patriarchy influence everyone, regardless of gender. The classical definition of patriarchy is social, political, and economic systems where the role of the male assumes primary authority. However, we can widen that to power assumed due to entitlements claimed not only through gender, but also through race, caste, class, geography, or economic advantage. Patriarchy can have benevolent, protective, and philanthropic Philanthrop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Dimensions. <laughs> but its shadows claims entitlement through the subordination and marginalization of others, which can even extend to a sense of ownership of them. This historical inheritance has, in particular, generated an imbalance between masculine and feminine. The essential dynamic of the so shadow patriarch, whether operating within a man or woman, is the unrelenting drive to power, dominance, and control. In many ways, this attempts to compensate for the loss of connection, love, and belonging, and ultimately for the loss of an ability to feel intimacy with life. When not caught in their own shadow of passivity and manipulation, these nurturing qualities which generate an inclusive and cohesive relational field are the natural domain of the healthy feminine. The impact of patriarchal wounding and the corresponding loss of ground for the feminine play out within Buddhist transmission. 
Unfortunately, Buddhist teachings have been used and sometimes distorted to justify gender discrimination. I encountered the impact of this as a Buddhist nun. For centuries, women have been considered illegitimate within the monastic Sangha. For legit legitimacy, there has to be full ordination, which has been vigorously obstructed, even though the Buddha set the precedent for it. As a result, nuns do not receive the same level of economic support or respect and are often seen as second-class citizens or failed women in contrast to men who are lionized when they do take the robes. I was shocked when I first saw that many women from Buddhist cultures made offerings to monks hoping the merit they gained would help them be reborn as men. This internalized misogyny is insidious and instead of being openly challenged, it's often colluded with and even encouraged. Ultimate teachings which rightly point beyond identity are wrongly applied when they are used to dismiss the effects of discrimination. Using transcendent teachings like this is sometimes called up-leveling. This is when teachings on non-attachment or emptiness are used to dismiss careful consideration of abusive practices, erroneous religious views, and unhealthy relational dynamics. Institutionalized patriarchy is also embedded in colonial practices which pretty much shape the whole globe, but perhaps nowhere more than Africa. When Kilisar and I first went to South Africa in 1994, we stepped into a country formed by centuries of colonialism, decades of apartheid, and a deeply ingrained African patriarchy. The Buddhist retreat center in Okopo, KwaZulu-Natal, where we first landed, is set in the Midlands in an area of languid hills that span from the Indian Ocean to the mighty Drakensberg Mountains. Alan Payton opened his renowned novel, Cry the Beloved Country, with the lines, There is a lovely road that runs from Mikopo into the hills. The hills are grass-covered and rolling, and they are lovely beyond any singing of it. Here in the 1980s, the vision of its founders and guides, the Van Loons, became the, f became the flagship for Buddhism in South Africa. The center makes a significant offering as a place of peace, safety, and inner reflection. Surrounded by stunning landscapes, it has diverse, a diverse and uplifting program. As resident guiding teachers, Kirisar and I taught dozens of retreats and workshops and helped develop the center's resources over a period of about seven years. A large Zulu staff worked in the kitchens, on the land, and in maintenance. This was very different from our monastic experience where monks and nuns and lay residents did all the manual work. Basically, the center operated within a feudal system. This reflected the surrounding conservative farming culture and deeply systemic system of white entitlement and black servitude woven into the matrix of South African society at the time. It was a culture shock to arrive into rural South Africa Although apartheid had officially ended, it still rolled on, affecting almost every aspect of daily life. Black and white people lived closely entwined, but a million miles apart. What I experienced as discordant was accepted as the norm. African workers were boys and girls, and while we lived in comfort and ate well, ate well a 15-minute walk away, the local Zulu population lived in abject poverty. 
I didn't have the inbred defenses to filter out the disturbing dynamic or complex feelings it entailed. I felt guilty about my white privilege, distressed about the poverty of our local community, and aware of a constant undertow of dislocation. I was out of place. While the local African community was deeply rooted in their land and culture, I felt that as whites we were rootless. Basically, I was overwhelmed by the dissonance of trauma held within the relational field. We arrived at a time when the country was swept by the euphoria of liberation after its first free elections, but also by a wave of violence. Systems founded in violence, legislating against people to control and diminish them, plant the seeds of fear, paranoia, and vengeance. People would come on our retreats and talk of hijackings, rape, and murder. The fear of them and what they might do was pervasive. Never go into a township. Make sure your house and car are locked securely. Put bars on your windows. Be careful if you go out after dark. The underlying tenor of fear and anxiety was overwhelming. One night, Kitty Sar and I were driving through a rural area trying to do something pretty normal, go to a movie. A young African man who careered off the freeway without braking slammed into our car. That's it, I thought, we're toast. However, as we looked at the car's crumpled fenders, the shocked man couldn't have been friendlier. After this incident, I became aware how rapidly I was internalizing fear. Every time I heard the common white refrain, Africa is not for sissies, my innate sissiness would do a wobble and pirouette. However, I knew that if we were to work in South Africa, I needed to accept the possibility of being caught in a violent incident. Making that conscious helped me decide that I wanted to work against living from a fear-based dynamic. We psychologically internalize the impact of patriarchal systems. To undo that conditioning is a big journey for all of us, both personally and collectively. First, we have to acknowledge how our natural state of sensitivity closes down. Social and state systems that promote apartheid-type dynamics create societies that desensitize people. In many ways, our global society is increasingly an apartheid dy dynamic, where those with wealth and entitlement distance themselves from those caught in cycles of servitude and poverty. The karma of this is that we feel fear and paranoia. When will they come over the border and take what we have? We disconnect from our hearts, which in reality knows we are all part of one another. This is what the heart naturally feels. It feels its connection to life. It knows itself as life. Yet we fear that radical intimacy and so obsess about our differences. When we divide against others, we also divide against the natural sensitivity of our own heart, which actually is an intolerable, intolerable and insidious pain. It's a pain that's hard to own and feel. Usually it's easier to project that onto those around. When there's a lot of damage to the fabric of self, family, and society, there's this constant shifting of pain onto others. However, those others have to stay invisible or defined in lesser ways to support the rationale for such dehumanizing treatment. When we have privilege, it blinds us. Generally speaking, those without power will know far more about their masters, in parentheses, than those than the other way around. 
Such a dynamic makes the other invisible to itself. It then fears and condemns those who challenge the system or threaten its power base. These systems are maintained through a million small daily ways that break real and authentic contact. But in moments of opening to the inner psychological pain of this dynamic, we begin a journey of reclamation. If you've noticed, it's hard to sustain division if you really look into another's eyes. Instead, you will see the same vulnerability that we all share. In the moment of truly seeing another, apartheid collapses. We are then only looking at ourselves. It's easy to criticize apartheid systems and harder to see how we internalize and perpetuate aspects of patriarchy, apartheid, and colonialism in our collective and personal lives. If we can't confront our blind spots, however, sometimes life will do it for us. We had been living right next to the Zulu community, divided as if by a wall of glass. That glass was about to crack open with the advent of HIV and AIDS. The smiling yet dour workers whose lives were mostly invisible to us were about to become much more visible. It was a cruel twist of fate that after the elation of deposing apartheid rule, the country was beset by the devastating, devastating pandemic of AIDS. The wildfire spread of the virus was enabled through a potent mix of governmental denial, tribal stigma, a cultural entitlement that allowed men to have unprotected sex with multiple partners, erroneous myths, lethargy, and a chronic lack of resources and education. The AIDS pandemic has taken millions to their deaths and created a legacy of child-headed households. It devastated already fragmented communities and heavily impacted the most vulnerable, women and children. As the grass wall fractured, under the pressure of the tsunami of AIDS, the Enlightenment journey was no longer a personal luxury. <coughs> In those days, many young people we knew became infected, and many died from AIDS. No antiretroviral medicine was available, and fear, despair, and shame were rife. Soon, we became engaged in our local rural communities as we all entered the sharp learning curve of living with AIDS. I remember our first educational workshop. A group of young Zulu activists came into the rural community next to the Buddhist retreat center. The Induna, or headman of the village, divided the group between men and women who sat in different classrooms. The activists stood up and said to the community that they were HIV positive, which was true. No one believed them. The community didn't believe the cause of deaths among their young people was AIDS. They thought it was something bad sprinkled on them by white people from aeroplanes, or it was a curse put on them by someone in the village. The activists then went on to talk about using condoms. One old bent-over granny, taking forever to get out of her chair, tried to stand upright to object. She was dumbfounded. How can this thing, a condom, stop you dying in 10 years' time? In a community that had low literacy, no access to the internet, and no education about HIV, this unfamiliar thing called a condom seems such an unlikely way to stop a new and strange and terrible disease. With financial backing from overseas Buddhist groups, particularly San Francisco Insight, London Insight, and Buddhist Global Relief, we co-founded and supported several outreach programs that focused on training care workers and community development. 
Our efforts were part of a larger movement of non-profit grassroots responses that emerged all over the country. Many groups simply transi transitioned from anti-apartheid work to AIDS response initiatives. Within 10 to 15 years, activists had forced the South African government and pharmaceutical companies to provide free and low-cost antiretroviral medicine. Rural communities where the mention of sex was previously taboo became proficient in learning the ins and outs of protective sexual practices. Positive living support groups mushroomed. Gender rights became an issue. And as AIDS highlighted the lack of resources in communities, development projects and literacy programs increased. While still much good work continues to be done, it doesn't diminish the huge amount still needed. Our journey into South Africa was a far cry from the introspective monastic lifestyle. Instead, our path became one of innovation, overwhelm, frustration, but also of hope. For 15 years, we fundraised, guided, and helped. We met many great and generous people. We met those who were on the AIDS industry bandwagon, cranks with crazy theories, those who were dedicated and selfless, and those who had dubious motives. It was heartbreaking and inspiring. A kid who always stays with me is Mkhonishwa, who was about 11 years of age when we met him at his grandmother's broken down hut. She was surrounded by 12 orphans and just a bag of old potatoes. He had some sort of complication from TB and had been lying on the floor in a blanket for about three years. He was very bright and his aspiration was to attend school, but he couldn't get there. On the day that his wheelchair arrived, his community built a pathway and ramp to the classroom. Even though very sadly he died shortly after starting school, his radiant smile surrounded by school friends continues to uplift me. Working in any activist situation is challenging. It's impossible to enter a traumatized relational field and come away unscathed. What starts as a simple, honest intention to help can become an intricate maze of relational complexity complexity, where power dynamics and people's sense of ownership fractures the goodness of the work. Here the shadow dwells, slamming us to the ground, yet also inviting us to part the clouds of illusion that eclipse our innate awakened nature. In the midst of challenge, our practice is to keep moving beyond the projections and splits of the mind, to draw it all back to the listening, quiet, spacious heart, to lay down our grasping and hurts, and to offer it all back into the mystery of life. One night, about a year or so into our new life in South Africa, I had a powerful dream. It was so vivid that it woke me up with a start. I was sure the person I dreamed of was in the room. In the dream, I was walking down a dusty road hand in hand with Kitty Saro, A powerful African woman who exuded strength, health, vitality and fertility stood in our way. She caught me by the arm and pulled me roughly to one side. Suddenly milk poured from her breasts into my mouth. It kept pouring and pouring until I was suffocating. I couldn't breathe and I started to panic. She told me to relax. As her milk overflowed and poured over Kitty Sorrow, the panic shifted to a deep feeling of letting go and trust. She gave me a mantra and let me know that Kitty Sorrow would be healed. 
Suddenly I was pulled out of the dream and was wide awake. I felt we had been welcome. It was like Mother Africa was allowing us to be there and do our work. I knew we had received her blessings and that it was okay to be in this land, that there could be protection in the face of all that we would meet. Whatever happens in life, our practice is to meet it. Ajahn Chah encouraged his disciples to practice like an earthworm rather than to try and be a Buddha. An earthworm goes down through the mud rather than catapulting its way into the light. In the same way, we have to work through the shadows to reclaim and heal our deeper heart. It's also like a butterfly. In the process of its transformation, a caterpillar digests itself and becomes mush before re-emerging into a beautiful, delicate, winged butterfly. These days, it seems the world is getting more chaotic and dangerous, but there's also potential here. As the shadows are drawn to the light of our awareness, there's the opportunity to free human consciousness from old dysfunctional beliefs. Rather than using spirituality to push away what is held in the shadow, the invitation is to touch our wounds with loving awareness so we can move beyond them. As a global consciousness, we are in an evolutionary process. It is painful, confused, and fraught with danger. However, as each of us awakens beyond the apartheid of the mind, as we choose to live beyond the energy of fear and oppression, we will birth the winged butterfly of our future. That was a bit longer than I meant <laughs> it to be. <laughs> so, thank you so much for your patience while I introduce our, our book. Will we have a little time, maybe uh, five minutes or so, if there's any questions or anything you'd like to uh, mention? Yes. Thank you very much. Um, I really wanted my husband to be here tonight, very wanting and wanting, and becoming angrier and angrier because he wouldn't join me. And as I'm listening to you, um, Kirisara, uh, some part in the, um, in the uh, chapter that you were reading related to uh, separateness. But as I'm listening, all of a sudden, I, it came to me that in my wanting him to uh, join me in all of this mm. really has to do with... Um, my own separateness, that mm. I really, I really don't want to experience the separateness. And that's mm. why I wanted him and want him to join me in this journey. Mm. And I wondered what you had to say about that. Mm. It's okay if you have nothing to say. No, no, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you made it. And that separateness that uh, feels something's wrong and, and, and we think the solution is, is out there. Uh, if, we, if we practice uh, honestly acknowledging, as you do, that this, this hurts, that it's not easy to be with that thought, uh, uh, we can go a few ways with that. We can go the way of 
just doubling down on, I can't believe you can't, you've changed, why aren't you, you know, joining me? You know, we can use it to deepen the riff, deepen the blame out. Or when we take and this experience and honor it as something important, it not being the way you want it to be, then it becomes what the Buddha called a ennobling truth. It becomes a noble truth. Or in the Christian language, it becomes a uh, pick up the cross. It, it transmutes into a new life, a, a resurrection. When we open to the suffering and the mind feeling alone and feeling separate, when we learn to hear those thoughts coming and going, and rather than just get lost in them with our, through our meditative training, recognize that those very thoughts which are masquerading as reality, saying what is good and bad, we notice those thoughts dissolving, that they come and go, their nature is ephemeral, and that they're appearing and dissolving in a stillness, a listening stillness, a silence, a home ground where every thought, every sound, every sensation manifests and dissolves back into this ocean where all the sense of separateness actually merges and alone becomes all one as we bless the sense of loneliness it through investigation and the willingness to be touched by it we we realize those perceptions are just that they're walls of the mind which dissolve and reveal a unifying because actually we are brothers and sisters. We do merge, so say all the saints and sages, in this one presence, this one heart. So I encourage you to, to honor that feeling and to welcome it and uh, in, investigate it. And uh, that allowing him to, uh, to be as it, as it is and you appreciating being with that experience might make it easier for him in his own time to uh, uh, recognize something in you that he, hey, I wonder what she's saying. Mm. Is there any other thing to say or? Mention. Well, um, sure. Mm. It seems like when uh, you left monastic life, you became even more monastic in some ways. <laughs> That's my uh, beautiful. You became. We became more monastic, orient in 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 the heart, in the sense that you engage the world and deepened your understanding of life. And in mm. some ways, that was the whole purpose of, I believe, being mm. monastic, mm. to open your heart and become more loving and compassionate. And, mm. and somehow you just uh, were thrown into this thrust. So my mm. feeling was to kind of appreciate that there is such a thing as, I wanted to be a monastic, by the way, and uh, it didn't work out in Japan, because 
I thought it was just too patriarchal, too macho. There was no meta. So um, a heart told me, like, if you stay here, you'll die, basically. Mm. So in some ways, I think being uh, a layperson versus my, there's no such distinction, it seems to me now, mm. that the profound work can be done in any place. Mm. Mm. And we, each one of us has to find what's the heart and listening as mm. you're listening to the heart. So I just want to make a comment about how beautiful that is to see that you became even more monastic. As you said once, Kitty sorry if I'm not wrong, you said we are in one robe, mm. right? Mm. Remember that? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. So mm. I thought it was very beautiful. Thank you for uh, coming and sharing this wonderful mm. teaching. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank mm. you. Mm. So, well, um, that's, um, that's sort of, what, what's next? <laughs> you, the, uh, maybe we can sort of break set from this uh, more formal structure. <laughs> and please... Um, yeah, thanks, Tom. Yeah, um, so, so for the rest of the evening, if you would like to get a copy of the books, they are they are at a lesser price in the store. Um, twenty dollars. Okay. Twenty dollars, and I've also there's a CD there which is uh, Kisai's brothers' beautiful music, which helps uh, sale of which goes towards the work. We continue to be in profound relationship with South Africa, and try and do what we can. Um, tomorrow we're going to have a day long, and that will continue on to uh, yeah uh, um, Sunday mi uh, middle of the day, and it's going to it's going to be called listening to the heart. We'll do more practice together. We're looking at um, you know actually this the deeper inner practice, and then applying it. We like to also in the afternoon do some work around cultivating community and uh, and how you know just contemplating bringing this heart, this undivided heart, uh, as a reality into, into the world that we live in. So we'll be exploring some of those themes. There'll be some practices, some um, meditation, some Dharma input, some um, inquiry questions, um, some small group practice, some um, dialogue, and so on some uh, devotional practice, also bringing in a little bit of, of, of practice around Kuan Yin, as well as the practices you know about, the mindfulness and the, and the uh, training of attention, etc., etc. So if you can, um, you're welcome to join us. We'd love to share the day and some of the weekend with you. Otherwise, please, um, we'll be here. We can sign books and anything else you'd like to mention or ask us about more personally, we'll we're not moving from the stage for the next while, so um, please feel free to, to connect, to talk with each other, um, and to um, explore buying a book, if you wish. <laughs> We're very happy uh, for that to happen. Thank you so much for coming. Thank, to see me. We really, you. really appreciate mm -hmm. your presence. Thank you.